It's Friday, April 12th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has been kicked out of the Ecuadorian embassy in London, arrested, and charged by the U.S. Justice Department with conspiracy to commit computer intrusion for allegedly conspiring with Chelsea Manning in 2010 to crack a password on Defense Department computers. This charge is an important distinction because it focuses more on Assange the hacker versus Assange the journalist, who published classified information. Joe Uchel, cybersecurity reporter for Axios, joins us for why Ecuador decided to rescind his asylum and what it means for press freedoms. Next, we speak to Rob O'Dell, senior investigative reporter for the Arizona Republic, who was part of a two-year investigation into how state lawmakers each year are introducing thousands of bills that were thought of and written by corporations, industry groups, and think tanks. The investigation found that at least 10,000 bills, almost entirely copied from model legislation, were introduced nationwide. More than 2,100 of those were signed into law. Rob will tell us what else the investigation revealed and which state lawmaker is the biggest culprit when it comes to sponsoring copycat bills. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. This sets a dangerous precedent for all media, organizations, and journalists in Europe and elsewhere around the world. This precedent means that any journalist can be extradited for prosecution in the United States for having published truthful information about the United States. Joining us now is Joe Uchel, cybersecurity reporter for Axios. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange was arrested at the Ecuadorian embassy in London after Ecuador withdrew its offer of asylum. He had been there since 2012, living under the radar right there. And it was just kind of so interesting to see what happened. The, you can see officials taking him out of the embassy. He's looks all scraggly. He's got a big old beard. He looks nothing like his former self. Tell us why Ecuador withdrew its offer of asylum and some new charges that the Justice Department laid on him. There are a few reasons why, why they've drawn charges. One of them is purely political. The, the new president of Ecuador is less on Assange's side than the previous administration, which has caused friction and some expectation that Assange would be expelled. But the Ecuador has said that Assange has inappropriately used technology within the embassy, and that, that was ultimately what led to his final ouster. Yeah, I think even the Ecuadorian government had accused WikiLeaks of leaking some photos, other personal information of the new president and his family to uh, an opposition lawmaker. So that was creating tension there. There was other reports that Julian Assange was just a terrible house guest, that he was eating other people's food. He had no basic hygiene there. He didn't control his cat and the litter box was like out of control. So there was a few of those things happening and they just decided to withdraw and immediately British authorities arrested him. And then came these new charges from the Justice Department. Uh, there are federal charges of conspiracy to commit computer intrusion for agreeing to break a password on a classified U.S. government computer. This has to do with Chelsea Manning. Explain that a little bit. The first big WikiLeaks event was a group of diplomatic cables that were released by the site. It came from Chelsea Manning. Julian Assange is essentially accused of helping Manning with some of the technical aspects of retrieving information and just trying and failing to break a password. I'm being told that this is enough under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act to trigger illegality. It's a very broad law, and this is essentially covered. Yeah, and they're interesting charges because they are focusing on Julian Assange as more of a hacker figure 
than a journalist, than WikiLeaks just kind of publishing documents. They're you know saying he had a hand in helping Chelsea Manning either hack a password or persuade her to do that. And that distinction is important because it changes the discussion from one about ethics of publishing classified information to one about hacking and hacking to obtain information in the interest of the public, things like that. So because for a long time, people were hailing Julian Assange as a hero for releasing a lot of these things. And they're saying if you arrest him and you prosecute him, you know, you're attacking the freedom of press. So explain that a little bit. This kind of distinction to to charge him with hacking stuff clears the air on the other side. That the Obama administration had decided against making formal charges against Julian Assange because of what is generally known as the New York Times problem. Um, if you charge WikiLeaks, you sort of have to charge the New York Times. WikiLeaks published cables in this case, and the New York Times operated off of these cables. And then beyond that, most newspapers are involved in using leaks as a component of general news gathering. And you don't want to be in a situation where in a taking down WikiLeaks, you are also inadvertently killing reporters doing normal work. But that is kind of sidestepped by this entire indictment. By charging him with hacking was something that essentially journalists don't do and know not to do. There is no freedom of the press issue. This is a way that the Department of Justice has avoided the worst fears that uh, people have had about how a potential arrest would go down. It's worth noting that there have been allegations that in other instances that Julian Assange has done these kinds of used these kinds of tactics in the Stratfor hack, which is a military contractor who it appears that he provide may have provided a searching algorithm to help sift through emails rapidly that were stolen from the contractor, as well as at least documents suggest that he may have sent an intermediary to direct the the, the hackers to target that one site. Man, during the 2016 election, it looks like he may have hacked a political action committee that was opposing the Trump campaign and provided the Trump campaign the password, which would appear to be very much illegal. What has been the reaction from, uh, I mean, around the world on this? I know President Trump, they asked him about, he says, I know nothing about WikiLeaks. It's not my thing. Even though previously he had said, I love WikiLeaks. Glenn Greenwald from The Intercept has said that he's encouraged Manning to get more docs for him to to publish. Journalists do this with sources constantly. It's just the criminalization of journalism. So I know that still people are focusing on that with regards to Julian Assange. That is not how I read the indictment. And I, the best of my conversations with lawyers hasn't been how they read it either. Glenn Greenwald appears to be brushing over the trying to break into files using a password, right, uh, right. trying to break the password component of it, which is the major violation of the CFAA. But obviously, whenever you go after somebody who's both a hero to millions and known to many people as the head of a media agency, there's going to be some belief that it's the media agency they're going after. The next step is to get Julian Assange extradited to the United States. Joe Uchel, cybersecurity reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Thank you.
more than 10,000 bills across the country in all 50 states um, that were substantially copied from model legislation. That means like, not that one or two lines were taken from it, that a huge number of lines were taken from it. And we found that one in five of those model bills became law. Joining us now is Rob Odell, senior investigative reporter for the Arizona Republic. We're going to be talking about something, I mean, I, I have a sense that most people kind of always thought this is how it happened, but you guys, between USA Today, the Arizona Republic, did a two-year investigation looking into what are called model bills. Basically, lawmakers use the work of corporations and uh, industry groups, think tanks, who write up these model bills, and a lot of times they'll introduce these bills into their own state legislatures verbatim. And it's not really what they were sent to do. You know, they set, they're sent to work on behalf of their constituents and they're kind of taking this shortcut. Tell us about this uh, big investigation and some of the major findings. People have known about this issue for a long time, but what we wanted to do was see if we could drill down on how much this is actually happening. What we were able to find was more than 10,000 bills across the country in all 50 states that were substantially copied from model legislation. That means like not that one or two lines were taken from it, that a huge number of lines were taken from it. And we found that one in five of those model bills became law. So that those were sort of the big takeaway. And, and we found that this was, in some ways, the largest unreported special interest campaign in the country, in part because it's, in many cases, cheaper and more effective than traditional lobbying and campaign contributions. Right. But a lot of times it works almost the exact same. These corporations, the industry groups, they're crafting these legislations to benefit them or to benefit things that are happening in their industry. They'll work with the lawmakers, they'll throw it to them. And if it makes it through, I mean, that in a sense, like you said, is just kind of uh, skirts the whole process that way. What are some of the uh, impacts that these bills have had? Because they're not always necessarily in the interest of the people. Uh, as I said, a lot of times, uh, you know, there's a few that you mentioned in the story. A lot of them have to do with asbestos. And, and it's basically, you know, limiting the way people can sue companies for being contaminated with asbestos, kind of uh, things like that. That is one of the particular ones that we talked about a lot in the story. And one of the things that's interesting is it's called the Asbestos Transparency Act, but it doesn't really like give people information on where to get treatment for asbestos or where they might have been exposed. What it does in effect is make it harder for people to sue asbestos companies. There were a couple of different bills, but one of them was written by the American Legislative Exchange Council. One of the interesting things about, and that's a bill in short, that's a group in shorthand called ALEC. And one of the things that's interesting in that bill is it was heard across many legislatures in the country. And in at least 13 of them, they had a quote unquote subject matter expert testify about particulars of the bill. And in many cases, they didn't disclose that that person was a member of ALEC and was a member of the organization that helped write the bill. And so we focused in some of our story about what happened in Colorado, a legislator who introduced it said he didn't really know exactly what the bill did. And he called up a chairperson at ALEC as a sort of neutral subject matter expert to explain what it did. So in, this, in that asbestos case, not only did they make it harder to sue, but they had a ready-made expert that was going around the country to tout this bill and what it did, and in many cases not disclose the ties that he had. Yeah, so there's a ton of things at play. A lot of these model legislations are drafted with deceptive titles to kind of describe their true intent. As you were saying, the Asbestos Transparency Act, you kind of think <laughs> it's going to help out the little guy. And the other part is that, uh, you know, they're creating this illusion 
of experts that they have while while they're really just in-house people for the most part. Why do a lot of lawmakers take this easy way out instead of crafting a bill from scratch? You think about it and you always hear the criticism. Why do we have such bad legislation? Why do things get pushed through like this? Why are they taking this easy way out? I think in part because it's easy. You know, you get a ready-made bill and you also, in the, in the in the case of ALEC and some of these other organizations, you get access to a group of people. You get sort of become a, a member of this group of people, this social network, this, you get access to um, corporate lobbyists, you get access to experts who will help you write bills and find bills and push issues that are in, you know, your while they might not be in your constituents' interest, they sometimes are in your partisan interest. So I think I think that that's why it's sort of this trade-off. Whereas legislators, you get ready-made access to the bill, access to donors. You're part of this this group that's pushing, you know, for in the case of Alec, conservative bills and ideas, and you know, for liberal groups, it's, it's the opposite. And you know, I, I just think that when you're running for re-election, you want to show that you have done that you have done things, and this is an easy way to do it. And so I think that that's why. You said that through your investigation, you guys found at least 10,000 bills almost entirely copied from model legislation. It could be even more than that because of the way you guys looked into this. You guys were matching identical text. Tell us a little bit about how the investigation was done. We basically ingested is the word we use, but that might not be the right word for your audience. We we took in all the 1 million bills, nearly 1 million bills between 2010 and 2018. And then we created our own database of model legislation from looking on the internet, talking to people, talking to lobbyists, identifying models we knew through the news. And what we did was we compared that list of 2,000 model bills. We compared the text inside them to the text in those million pieces of legislation. And what we did was we created a score to see how similar they were based on how many strings of text they borrowed of more than five words. So for those 10,000 bills, they are substantially copied from them. Like they didn't just take a sentence or two. In a lot of cases, they took whole sections verbatim. And, you know, what our investigation found is that the, the effect of this is almost certainly much higher. Um, we, we sort of were creating the universe for the first time, and we wanted to be very um, we wanted to be very diligent. So we didn't so we didn't take in a whole bunch of bills that weren't models, right? We wanted to create a with these ten thousand bills. These were definitely copied from models. We didn't want to take in anything that's maybe. Um, but we also know that if you copied the idea. It's not going to show up in our algorithm. So if so, so if you copied the idea and wrote it yourself, it, we're not going to find it. Um, one of the one of the examples we had was the right to try bill. We know that that was that that was uh, we know that that was passed in 41 states. Our algorithm found 22 of them because in 22 of them they copied enough of the exact exact model legislation that w- that you know we we found it. But in those other states, they copied the idea and wrote the bill themselves, and then then we wouldn't find it. So the is, is certainly much higher. This is this is just a um, the portion we could prove right now. Tell us who the worst offender of this is. It's a person named. Uh, it's a representative Thomas Mert from the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, and he is the guy that sponsored uh, more model legislation than any other state lawmaker in the whole country. 
He's from the Philadelphia suburbs. He sponsored 72 bills that we flagged as models. He was the only primary sponsor for one of them. So what he says happened is that he signed on to other people's bills, not realizing that they were models. that he, you know, that the, I guess in Pennsylvania they have a, uh, they send out like a note, will you sign on to my bill? And what he's saying is they didn't disclose to him that they were models when he signed on to them, that they were drafted for model legislation. But that sort of raises the question, if a lawmaker who, you know, who, who's who's in the state house doesn't know the origins of these bills, how exactly would the public know? Right. And that's long been a criticism, uh, you know, uh, lawmakers not reading the bills not really understanding what's in there. And this is kind of an effect of that. Uh, you know, they're, they're just getting a summary. They don't know who, yeah, where it at all originated from. And yeah, okay, it sounds like a decent idea. Let me sign on. But they never read it. So this is where, you know, all the confusion happens later. Yeah, exactly, and it and it goes to show how important we we wrote in the story how important the summaries and the titles are, is because in a lot of cases our representatives aren't reading and knowing exactly what these bills do, and you know if if they're not doing it, how how are we supposed to know? Because uh, we we elect them to represent us there. You mentioned the right to try bill and uh, yeah, how it passed in 41 states. Uh, there was something on the national level. Also, the president touted that uh, how the bill was so perfect. It was, you know, the, you know, right to try. It just sounds great. Talk a little bit about that one, only because while it, it does seem like a, a great thing for terminally ill uh, patients to use experimental drugs that aren't approved by the FDA, you know, just in hopes of extending their life or helping them out a little bit. It does sound great. Uh, this particular bill was focus group tested with the wording. Uh, it's, you know, there's not really very many people who would benefit from it. So it's just kind of one of these, uh, uh, you know, model legislations that kind of went, uh, haywire. Well, so, um, it, it originally was, uh, spawn, it, it, the, the idea originally came from, uh, a corporation, Cancer Treatment Center of America, one of their consultants, um, came up with the idea and then joined forces with the Goldwater Institute here in Arizona. And they crafted this right to try legislation in part by, um, using focus groups to see, you know, what would resonate the most. Um, and, and the bill certainly sounds great, which is one of the reasons it was passed in 41 states and in Congress and was signed by, uh, President Trump. But one of the things critics would say is we had a very similar program called Compassionate Use that had about a thousand people that used it every year and, you know, had um, approval rates of more than 90%, in some cases 99%. Um, so critics will say it, it didn't really do very, very much more than the existing law. And uh, as of right now, uh, Goldwater, for our story, could point to two people who used it um, and then another study where a doctor had 200 pa- that involved 200 patients. So, um, it, so as of right now, we haven't seen uh, you know this big uptick in a- approvals from Right to Try that was was sort of hinted at as these bills made it across the country. It, it's a great look into how state lawmakers operate within their respective houses and how they're using these uh, shortcuts with uh, legislation that was written by corporations, industry groups, think tanks, and just kind of pushing it through. Rob O'Dell, Senior Investigative Reporter for the Arizona Republic, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me.
that's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.